the insight which has probably brought us all here together for this retreat is an understanding that I think we all have deeply in common. And that is that the unfolding of our lives and the path of our lives has its origin in the mind. And mind here means big mind, not simply the intellect, but mind being thoughts and emotions and feelings, the very process of consciousness itself. And in some way, the purpose of meditation practice, the point of doing this, is to develop those tools of understanding so that we can look at and observe and investigate and explore exactly what the nature of this mind is. And it's so essential for us to do that because our whole lives come from it. Even from the very beginning of a meditative practice, we can, we can begin to get a sense of this mind, this enormously creative energy as something which is tremendously dynamic and changing. The mind is being conditioned and reconditioned in every moment of experience. Conditioned and reconditioned by a whole array of different qualities and factors. We can see it, we feel it, we experience it every time anger arises or love arises or mindfulness or concentration or delusion or fear or joy or happiness. Each one of these forces is conditioning the mind in a certain way and reconditioning that particular pattern. Sometimes in meditation, I've often felt that the mind is like uh, a Star Wars of mental factors. You know, and there are the wholesome factors and the unwholesome factors, and they're all kind of exploding in this vastness of consciousness, each with their own particular kind of force, each with their own particular influence in the mind. Meditative awareness or meditative investigation brings us in a very close and intimate way, in a very direct way, to see which forces, which qualities of mind create suffering, create suffering for ourselves and for others. And it's not theoretical. We see it very directly because we're paying attention. And we see very intimately and very directly what are those qualities of mind which actually lead to happiness, which lead to a sense of peace. What makes the meditative process so powerful is that this wisdom, this understanding, is no longer second-hand. It's not what we've read in books. It's not what some great teacher tells us. It's something we know for ourselves because we've seen it. Vipassana, the Pali word Vipassana, means seeing things clearly, seeing things as they are. And this means two things. It means both seeing what the arising object is so that we're clear, we're not deluded about actually what's happening in each moment. And it also means seeing clearly the nature of the process, how the process of arising objects is unfolding. What are the laws governing this process? So we begin to understand both the content and also the context in which it's all happening. There are many laws which govern this process. The Buddha singled out one of them as being vitally important for us to understand. 
He felt that it was so important that we understand it that he called the lack of understanding basic wrong view, dangerous wrong view, when we don't understand this one basic law. And that is the law of karma, the law of cause and effect. The understanding that actions, volitional actions, bring about results. It's very easy for us to understand how this works in the physical domain. There are lots of laws of science, of chemistry and physics and biology, and we understand to a very large extent the lawful nature of those processes. What was so extraordinary about the Buddha's insight was that he was able to see the same degree of lawfulness in this process of nama rupa, of mind and body. He understood that the driving force behind the understanding or the unfolding of karma is the mental factor of volition. That is the intention to do something. As I spoke of earlier, this factor of volition or intention, that's like the organizing force in the mind. It organizes all the other qualities for the purpose of a particular objective. The volition is neutral. This volition can be in the service of wonderful things. It can be in the surface of very harmful things. And so if we want to understand a little bit how karma is unfolding in our lives, we need to understand what are the forces associated with the volition in any particular action. And the Buddha made it quite simple in a way for us. You know, in this, in this array of different qualities and factors and forces and elements and, you know, all the lists, with tremendous clarity of understanding, he reduced what we need to know to three very simple things. He said, the three roots of unwholesome action are greed, hatred, delusion. So when there's a volitional act associated with greed or hatred or delusion, it's productive of some result of suffering. Three wholesome roots. Non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. You know, or we could say of generosity, of love, of wisdom. What I think is very hard for us to understand, very hard for us to get, the power of this volition in the mind. And an analogy, which, which might throw some light on it, you know, we see a little acorn, and it seems so insignificant, it's just this tiny little thing. And yet within that acorn, what is the potential that is residing in that acorn? A huge tree. And it's all there in potential. And it's quite, it's quite an amazing mystery how that happens. How does a big, tremendous tree grow out of something so tiny? or the birth of a human being. In exactly the same way, each volition in the mind, the volition itself behind any particular action is a very small thing. What the Buddha discovered was that that volition is like this seed that it contains within it this enormous potential to bring many different kinds of results. Just as, a, just as a seed 
will give rise to a tree which can bear many fruits. Just so every volition bears many fruits for us. If we can connect with this truth, if we can see that there is this power that is arising in every moment of an action, that our actions are not happening in vacuums, but they are actually the seeds for the results which determine the unfolding of our lives, then we begin to appreciate why the Buddha called the law of karma and understanding it the light of the world. Because when we don't understand it, when we don't understand that this is how things are unfolding, it's like we're going blindly through our lives. We're doing all kinds of things. We may have different aspirations for happiness and well-being and joy. But if we don't understand the karmic law, we can be doing those very things which keep bringing back suffering to us and not knowing, not knowing why things aren't the way we wish them to be. This law of karma, the light of the world, it illuminates why things are the way they are, how things are unfolding. It's the light of the world because it brings us to the understanding of what actually becomes the seeds of happiness and what actions become the seeds of suffering. We begin to know that. And from knowing it, we can act on it. Dalai Lama said something very interesting about this law of karma. He was talking just about Buddhist theory and philosophy. He was talking about the understanding of emptiness, the emptiness of self, which is in some way the central understanding of the Buddha's enlightenment, and the law of karma. And he said that if he had to choose between them, he would choose understanding the law of karma. Now, maybe you don't relate to the shocking nature of that statement, but for somebody steeped in the Buddhist tradition, that's a very striking statement. But I think he was pointing to something very, very important, which is that we can have some different levels of understanding the empty nature of things and use that to rationalize all kinds of actions. Oh, it's empty. And it doesn't matter what I do, everything's empty. And that happens a lot, and it's sort of a spiritual occupational hazard. You know, it's a little taste of something that's very profound, and then using that little taste to rationalize, rationalize things which are very unwise, which is why I think the Dalai Lama said, I would choose the understanding of the law of karma because that is the very direct and clear understanding of how actions bring about results. What interests me in the exploration of this is how we can go from a theoretical understanding we can read about it and we can hear about it, this law of karma and you know, what kinds of actions lead to what kind of results. How can we go from a theoretical understanding, an abstract understanding, to one that really connects with the immediate experience of our lives? Well, that's what I'd like to touch on tonight a little bit. One way of understanding this law of karma that's very immediate for us, and we all have this experience, is the understanding of present karma, 
That is how a particular mind state conditions us in the present moment. Strong anger arises in the mind. What is the present karma of that anger or hatred? You know, or fear or lust, whatever the, whatever the force is. Or love or happiness or mindfulness. We can see just in the moment, the present moment, the effect of that mind state. We can feel, if we're paying attention, it becomes very clear which states create suffering, which states create peace. This is no longer abstract. This is something that we are seeing directly. We can also see this present karma in terms of how people are relating to us when we're in the midst of these mind states. What kind of result, what kind of impact does hatred have? What comes back to us when we're expressing that hatred? What comes back to us when we're expressing love or generosity? It seems so obvious. But we need enough clarity to be paying attention to the obvious, to really seeing in our experience, yes, this is what happens. There's another way we can understand in our experience how this law of karma works, and it becomes very clear in meditation practice. And that is how the mind retains the impressions of past experiences. It's all in there. You know, and you come to sit and quiet down and make some space, and all that stuff that's in there begins to show itself. And when the wholesome experiences of the past come up, it can be a source of great joy. It really can bring a great delight in the mind. When all the unwholesome things that we've done begin to come up, it doesn't bring so much delight. It can bring an array of reaction. Sometimes it brings a tremendous remorse. Sometimes it brings guilt. I think it's helpful to distinguish these these two emotions because we're more familiar, I think, with guilt than remorse. With guilt, there's a self-blaming. You know, it's a judgment of ourselves for being so bad. It's a very unforgiving quality of mind. The quality of remorse is actually uh, partakes of wisdom. Because when there's remorse in the mind about something unskillful, we say, yes, That was an unskillful action. We recognize it. We take responsibility for it. But we're also not beating ourselves. We're understanding that was unwholesome. Let it be the cause. Let this understanding be the cause of my not doing it again. It's a very forgiving attitude combined with a real understanding. One of the things which I'm sure you will experience over these days and days and days (laughs) of sitting and walking is that there really is an unburdening of all these impressions. You know, at first they may be quite recent impressions and memories. As things quiet down, impressions and memories and images start coming up from way in the past, things we didn't even know we remembered start to show themselves. And if we can be with this, with clarity and with balance and with openness, it really is a wonderful lightening of the mind. The mind actually begins to feel lighter because we're not holding on unconsciously with reaction to all of these impressions Nyanaponika Terra, who's this now very old German monk who's lived in Sri Lanka for many, many years, he had a wonderful homely expression for this process. He called mindfulness 
mindfulness meditation, the general house cleaning of the mind. You know, now what's so amazing is that this house cleaning takes place really without doing anything. It's just sitting and being present or walking and being present. Of course, the being present is the key element here. But what happens is this house cleaning takes place. All of these impressions start coming up. And as they do, we can begin to see in this respect the karmic consequences of our past actions. Sometimes there's a very specific karmic result that we can make a very close connection to. I'll just tell you one story which I'll abbreviate a lot. When I was in the Peace Corps in training, uh, part of my training was uh, killing a chicken. And I was under massive delusion at the time. And I just had this idea, I ought to be able to do this, and I'm a man... And I have this picture of myself very proudly holding this scrawny chicken that I'd just done in. Years later, when I was practicing, this started coming back to me in my mind. It was, it was horrible. I mean, it was re- this reliving with clarity of what I had actually done. It was a tremendously painful feeling. And most amazingly was, I was in this, small place in India, in Bodhgaya, the Burmese Vihara. And we, they just served us a little food uh, in the evening. And they served me some eggs that night. And the only time in my life that this has happened is that the egg they served had a little embryo chicken in it. I, it was the day that all of this was coming up in my mind. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> synchronicity of something or other. There are many stories of not only the karmic impressions, but also actual events or, or physical experiences happening which are related to past karmic actions. There's this, there's this whole unfolding process, emptying process that takes place. There's another way that we can understand how karma unfolds in our practice. And this is very helpful. The Buddha Buddha talked about four kinds of yogis. And I think you'll be able to recognize yourself in one of these four. He said there are people who progress slowly with a lot of pain. There are people who progress quickly with a lot of pain. There are people who progress slowly and it's pretty comfortable the whole time. And there are people who progress quickly and it's pretty comfortable the whole time. There don't seem to be too many in this last category. (laughs) These people seem to be quite rare. There are people in noticeable numbers in the other three. But what I found helpful about this, and that's determined as a karmic result of our past actions. You know, and when when we look over lifetimes, uh, understanding this, that the speed with which we develop insight and the, the relative ease or painfulness of the process We don't have to take responsibility for that. It's not that we're a bad yogi if it's one way or another way. This is just the conditions that we have created through our past actions. It doesn't really matter. However it's unfolding, whichever category we're in, you just keep walking on the path. It leads to the same goal. So we can take a certain pressure off of ourselves. It's like we've been dealt a hand of cards We play the hand well. So we can understand karma in terms of the present karma, just the effect of different mind states. 
We can see it in terms of the impressions that are arising in the mind of past experience. We can also see how karma is working in terms of the certain habits and patterns that are developed in our lives. Now, when we repeat certain actions over and over again, certain kinds of actions, that is really what is determining our basic personality. We say somebody's a very loving person, a very angry person, you know, a very concentrated person, or happy, or sad, or whatever. That personality is really nothing more than the karmic effect of certain habitual actions performed again and again and again until this becomes the way we are. This development of personality can also be extrapolated into something that I love talking about. And it's something most people don't even believe. But it's all about the different realms of existence, which is very much a part of the Buddhist teachings, although not an essential one to believe to do the practice. But it talked about how these different realms are created by habituated patterns. That the lower realms, the hell realms, are the manifestations of very strong hatred. Now, when this is the force that's been practiced over and over again in the course of our lives, what is created, both in this life and perhaps in another realm, is, is a hell. Tremendous suffering. When there's obsessive greed, you know, when the mind is filled with greed and covetousness and grasping, what's created is the realm of the hungry ghosts, beings who are never satisfied. When there's tremendous fear over and over again, when that is practiced and repeated and habituated, the realm, the demon, the asura realm is created. Here's where I get into a little bit of trouble. When there's a lot of dullness you know, or delusion in the mind, when we don't know what's going on, that's said to be the condition for the animal realm. But lassie. <laughs> there are some notable exceptions. <laughs> It's said that generosity, the cultivation, the practice of generosity in sila, morality, are responsible for the human realm. And when those are practiced even more, the heavenly realms of existence. And when concentration is practiced, the Brahma realms. So each one of these is merely the reflection or the manifestation of forces in the mind which we are cultivating and practicing in different ways. You know, throughout our lives. We can see how they're operating from day to day. We don't have to wait for some rebirth. We can see the hell realm of hatred. And we can see the heavenly realm of generosity and loving kindness. But it means paying attention. All of this is the unfolding of this wheel of karma. At one point, somebody asked the Buddha, why are there so many differences among people? Some people are rich, some people are poor. Some people are beautiful, some people are not. Some are healthy, some are sickly. And this is true universally. You know, wherever we look, we see these, these huge differences in the conditions of people's lives. And the Buddha answered in a very uh, clear way, explaining in further detail this law of karma, of how specific actions bring about specific kinds of results. And we need to understand this over lifetimes. It's not always easily understood within the context of a single life. But he said that generosity 
is the karmic cause of abundance. And miserliness is the karmic cause of poverty. That harming people is the cause of ill health. And non-harming is the cause of good health and long life. That angry speech, harsh speech, judgmental speech is the cause of loss of beauty. And kind speech and gentle speech is the condition for beauty to arise. That investigation, the questioning mind, is the cause for wisdom. And the mind that doesn't question, that doesn't investigate, that's not interested, is the cause for dullness. It's helpful, I think, just to begin to understand in these different dimensions, you know, karma in the present moment, karma in terms of past impressions coming up, karma in terms of development of personality and realms, karma in terms of specific action and result. All of these are facets you know, of this jewel of understanding that has such a profound influence on our lives. I'd like to just share with you two of my favorite karma stories. They're, as you can imagine, limitless number of stories illustrating various points. The first one, it's sort of an unfortunate story, although it has a funny little twist to it. This was told to me by a friend. I didn't hear this directly, but it came from a friend who was a monk in Burma for a long time. And he, he was involved with, with the people involved. It seems like there was a very firm, uh, famous Burmese movie actor who lived a fairly dissolute life and he died at a certain age. And his family went to these, I guess there's uh, you know, a certain kind of person in Burma who's able to see where people are reborn. And his family went um, to this person and asked him, well, you know, where, where was he reborn? We'll call him Max for convenience sake. And this person just said, don't ask. <laughs> Better not to know. But the family asked again and again, and they really wanted to know. Okay. So this guy said, well, if you go to this farm, way in the north of Burma, it's a pig farm, and you go to where all the pigs are kept, and you call out, Max, 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 see what happens. <laughs> this, is, this is a true story. <laughs> Although it may be hard to believe. <laughs> So the family went up to this farm and there were all these pigs and they're calling Max, Max, and this one pig <laughs> comes over. And then, you know, they do this several times and the same pig keeps coming and so they become convinced. They took this pig home, <laughs> back to the house and created this special place for it and fed it nice Burmese curries. And <laughs> so it had somewhat mixed karma. It was a little unfortunate. <laughs> that he was reborn as a pig. <laughs> uh, but he had s done something good anyway. <laughs> I'll tell a story on the other side of things. Again, it may not strike you immediately as being very plausible, but it's a story that I like. It's, it seems that this, this one person had lived quite a good life you know, and um, had really been very careful about following the precepts and was generous and did a lot of wholesome actions. And it's said that when he died, as he was dying, I was just describing the, the death process, 
he had visions of, I don't know the right word exactly, representatives from all the different deva planes, the heavenly planes, coming down to invite him to come to their plane of existence. You know, and it said that as he was dying, I guess this was some kind of mental, mental activity, he sort of tossed this garland over the messenger of the Tusita realm, which is where uh, Maitreya, the next Buddha, is supposed to be residing and as a way of signaling that that's the realm he wanted to be reborn in. It always made me smile, <laughs> that particular story. Whether or not you actually believe in the different realms or not, I wouldn't let that get in the way of really quite a profound looking at what is really important in this teaching about the law of karma. Because whether or not you believe in past lives and next lives, we can see the impact of it right within this life. And it's very important because it conditions how our life unfolds and how we relate to our experience. When we understand that things are happening lawfully, it's not accidental that actions bring about results in a whole variety of ways. This affects the way we're relating to our experience. One of the things that it does is it brings us to a place of acceptance rather than resentment for the difficult things or pride about the pleasant things. Instead of reacting in that way to the play of our lives, we understand this is all the result of previous karmic actions. It's not accidental. It's not a mistake. Things happen because of certain laws, because of certain conditions. Now, what's important here and what's often misunderstood is that acceptance does not mean resignation. Sometimes people misinterpret this and they think, well, things are all karmically unfolding, I have to accept it. And they take that to mean a kind of passive resignation in the face of events. That is not at all the proper implication. Rather, it is simply understanding Yes, there are conditions behind why certain things happen. Both the good things and the difficult things. So we can accept the lawfulness of it and then respond in the appropriate way. But we have then neither resentment nor pride in what's happening because we understand the lawfulness of it. Something else happens which is tremendously important for us when we reflect on and understand to some extent, even if it's a limited extent, this law of karma, of cause and effect. And that is we begin to take more responsibility for our actions because we see how powerful each of our actions is. It's like that acorn with the potential to become a huge tree. Each of our action has the power to bring a vast array of results. When we know this, we start to take a little more care with what we do. We start to take a longer range vision of our lives. You know, and this is so antithetical to sort of the American culture. Everything here is so instant and everything is... <clears throat> it really is driving us crazy, as you may have noticed. 
one time when I came back from Asia, the, the example of this was, was so striking. I'd been in Asia for a long time and then came back and somebody took me to one of these kind of fast food places where you drive in, you shout your order into the microphone, you drive up and your food's ready. It's like, whoa. (laughs) Really, we need a certain level of maturity to see that our actions have long-term consequences. And we need to start taking a long-term vision of the effect of our actions. It's very obvious, and we've mentioned this before, just we can see it in terms of the environment, we can see it in terms of social situations, that actions have consequences. And we need to look at those consequences. The difficult part We can see it more and more clearly out in the world. Can we see it in ourselves? We know that polluting the environment is not going to a good place. Can we see that in terms of our own inner environment? It takes a lot of clarity. Now, mostly what we do when we're not trained to be attentive, to be awake, we kind of just bumble through our lives doing what we're doing. We don't know. We don't know our motivations. We don't see the consequences of our actions. And then we wonder why we live in confusion or disharmony. It's precisely a deep understanding and reflection about this law of karma it enables us, it empowers us to really take responsibility for what we do. It's like we understand, yes, this action is going to bear significant results. The Buddha had a term for this, which is found throughout the the teachings. He called it clear comprehension. So we really know what we're doing and where the action is leading. And it's only when we have clear comprehension that we can see, okay, this action is leading someplace. Do I want to go there? Is that the destination that I want to end up at? If we don't have this clear comprehension, we don't know where we're going. And we're surprised sometimes where we end up. Now, in each of our actions, and they can be very small ones, they can be in our actions of speech. You know, ordinary things that we do every day. Qualities are being developed. Are they the qualities we want strengthened? I read on the jacket of a book... was describing the book, said, a novel of love, lust, passion, and greed has something for everyone. (laughs) A delight. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) We need to see what we're doing. You know, and what's being cultivated and where we're going. Now, each of our actions, it's like this drop of water in a bucket. Each drop seems so insignificant, but drop, drop, drop. Amazingly quickly, the bucket gets filled. Every moment, our mind is being conditioned in one way or another. And what we are today and the quality of our minds today is the result of how it's been conditioned, perhaps over countless lifetimes. It's a very dynamic process. It's not fixed. It's not static. And that's what gives so much creative energy to this whole meditative process. As we begin to make some space and just see how it's all working, we get some clarity in our minds then we can begin to choose what forces, what qualities do we want to strengthen? How do we want to create our minds? 
So seeing and taking greater responsibility for our actions. That's another aspect of understanding law of karma. Can also become a strong motivation for practice. And when we see how our minds are being conditioned in so many ways, it can it can create a sense of tremendous spiritual urgency. There's, there's a Pali word which is called samvega, and it just means seeing the really the urgency of waking up. Because when we're not awake. We're just creating world after world after world, unknowingly. Strengthening forces that we may not want to be strengthening. And so there's a tremendous inspiration simply to see, you know, and the beauty of this practice is that it enables us in the simplest possible way just to see really what's going on. It's not enough simply to reflect on all of this. I mean, understanding some of these dimensions of the law of karma is very helpful. It's, it's essential. But it's also not quite enough. We actually need some strength in the mind or power in the mind to apply this wisdom we have this whole understanding of the law of karma and what creates what, and we have it all figured out. But unless we have some power to manifest that wisdom in our lives, it doesn't help that much. So what is this power that we have that can actually apply this wisdom? There's one source, there's one power source, which is greatly misunderstood and tremendously helpful. And that is the power that we all have in us of renunciation. Now, renunciation doesn't mean necessarily that we all kind of run off and go to some cave in the Himalayas and leave the world and that's it. Although it's an option. Some of you might consider it. But there's a much more immediate application of renunciation and one that's very connected with our ordinary lives. One of the most powerful aspects of renunciation is something very simple, and that is the ability to let go of what is unskillful. It's that ability which we cultivate it may not be strong, very strong now, but it can be strengthened. It's that ability in the mind to say no to something that is unwholesome. That we do not have to act on every impulse that comes up, on every desire. We have a power. There's actually the possibility of renunciation of unwholesome things. What's important as we practice this kind of renunciation is to understand that this saying no is not the no of aversion. It's not the no of fear. It's not the no of denial. It's not the no of suppression. It's none of those things. It's actually the no of wisdom. We see that something is arising which is the cause of suffering, suffering for ourselves, for other people, in a very loving way and perhaps firm way. We can say, no, I don't have to do that. Do you see the freedom that comes from that ability? This renunciation is not something onerous or burdensome. It's tremendously liberating. Instead of being the slave to every impulse that arises in the mind, 
we see that we can actually apply some discriminating wisdom. We can see, yeah, this is skillful, this is not skillful. And we develop, we practice the ability, no, I'm not going to do that. You might practice it in the same way one would say no to a child who is about to do something that's, that's harmful, that we know is, is going to hurt it. Just say, no, no, can't do that. Don't do that. Ajahn Sumedho, who's the Western monk, who's Ajahn Chah's main Western disciple, he had a very telling phrase which sort of is contrary to a lot of New Age belief system. Ajahn Sumedho said that what we need to do is not to follow the heart, but to train the heart. You know, but we have this idea that everything that comes out of our heart is beautiful and noble and worthy. And I suggest taking another look. <laughs> lots of things come out of the heart. We have lots of desires, lots of different kinds of passions and interests. And some are worthy, some are not so worthy. We need to train the heart, not simply follow it. And this is this power that we have of renunciation, of saying, no, that one is leading to suffering, either for myself or for others. So that's one aspect of renunciation. Another aspect of it, which has tremendous application to yogis on retreat, is the understanding of renunciation as the conservation of energy. Now, as you practice, and this is very intensive practice, it's sitting and walking, sitting and walking and noting and continuously through the day, one of the things that happens in the course of this is that a tremendous energy starts to build up. And it's an energy in the body, it's an energy in the emotions, it's an energy in the mind. And sometimes this build-up of energy gets uncomfortable. It's like we're blowing up a balloon and it's stretching and stretching and stretching and stretching. And sometimes we don't like that feeling of being stretched. You know, it's pushing at limits, at boundaries. And so one of the common things that we do as yogis, and we've all done it, is we devise many, many ways to leak a little bit of the energy to let some air out of the balloon. And we all have our own favorite ways. And one of the most common ones, of course, is just sitting and daydreaming. That's a nice way to just, you know, just sit and get involved in some nice, pleasant daydream. But actually what's happening, we're losing a quality of energy there. It's an energy leak. Ambling about, you know, the ambling yogis. <laughs> There's a tremendous power and clarity which comes from the continuity of mindfulness, where we're really being awake moment after moment after moment. And it's not to say that sometimes the mind doesn't wander or get lost. It will, of course, do that many times. But the basic intention is to really come back and be present and be present and be present. But sometimes if we're feeling, you know, this build-up, the tendency might be, ah, I think I'll just take a little vacation, I'll take a little break. You can kind of see, you know, the, (laughs) the ambling yogis about. That also is an energy leak. Let me say that for some people, at certain times, the energy buildup gets so strong and there's not sufficient balance in the mind to be with it, sort of a retreat from it is very strategic. So there are times when that's helpful. But when the balance is there, and it's simply a question of sustained attention or being lazy, go for the sustained attention. Keep building. Conserve the energy. Let it build. Because that's what empowers the practice. 
It's like it opens deeper and deeper levels of understanding to us. Notice how many times you look at the noteboard outside the office. That was one of my favorites during when I was sitting. As I could just see, I would be walking by, and I could just see my mind. <laughs> you know, maybe there'll be a note for me. Maybe somebody loves me out there. <laughs> it didn't even matter what the note said. You know, <laughs> it's contact. <laughs> Once a day, twice a day is fine. Ten times a day is unnecessary. And it's really just to look. I mean, as I said, we each have our own, our own ways of these energy leaks. See if you can be aware of them and work with the spirit of renunciation, letting go of those actions as a way of conserving the energy it makes the, the practice very, very strong. And the last aspect of renunciation I want to mention is something which is most freeing and tremendously liberating. It's not only the letting go of what's unskillful, and it's not only this conservation of energy, third aspect of renunciation is the non-identification with each arising object. It's the renunciation of this investment of self in a thought, in an emotion, in a sensation. It's not creating the sense of self which keeps entangling us in experience. Because that's what this identification process does. We just get enmeshed in every arising object. When we can be with experience and allow experience simply to be there without this added process of identification with it, there's a tremendous spaciousness which begins to come. When we're no longer driven to act by each passing thought or each passing urge. We're no longer driven by this force of identification with each object. What happens? There's a much greater space in the mind to move and to act in the world from a place of compassion. Because we're not being driven. Rather, we're settled back. There's a sense of spaciousness Things are arising and passing. We can see them clearly and we can bring some discriminating awareness that this is wholesome, this is appropriate, this is not wholesome, it's not appropriate. Our lives become extremely creative in this sense. When we're not so busy acting out, which we do a lot in our lives, our minds become quieter. What we find is that we can be much more sensitive to ourselves and to other people. The Dalai Lama, again, who's a very, very extraordinary and wonderful being, he summed it up so beautifully. He said, my true religion is kindness. So, so simple. Through the practice, when we observe the mind closely, we can begin to understand in very immediate ways the law of karma. That is, that actions bring results. And in so many of the ways I mentioned, we can see that, we can experience it. From understanding the law of karma, that actions bring results, we can appreciate the power of renunciation because it's that power which is strengthened which gives us the ability to make choices. Letting go of what is unskillful, conserving our energy, not identifying with every object that comes.
These are the renunciations which we can practice. And it's these kinds of renunciation which creates a great spaciousness in our minds and in our lives. Sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.